Okay, and we're off. So, Tom Evely, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Um, okay, so you are currently a global procurement category manager at Sodexo. Um, yeah. But I know you're, there's, there's kind of things in flux at the moment in terms of what you're doing. Um, what would be great is if you could give a bit of background on what you do and your experience and your interests in the area of procurement and particularly services procurement, that would be really, really great. And then we've got some brilliant topics to come on to, um, which also tie into some work you're doing in writing what I think is going to be a very interesting book. So could you just give a kind of snapshot background of your, your experience so far and, and what you're doing? Right. So, so yeah, like a lot of people, I think I sort of fell into procurement. It wasn't, um, wasn't a sort of planned career choice. Um, I, I worked for a startup early, about 10 years ago, earlier in my career, um, which we kind of grew from close to inception to over $60 million in revenue, 400 employees within about three or four years. So, you know, massive, um, massive growth there of what was a service organization. So it was a branch of the world's biggest private education firm. Um, and yeah, procurement and supply chain was kind of an area that Previously, we didn't have that great a grip on, but we needed to in order to scale that quickly. And so what, what we did was a lot of outsourcing agreements um, and engagement with service providers in order to scale that up. So I kind of got a, you know, a perfect sandbox for learning um, how to manage outsource service suppliers, um, you know, master service agreements, scope of work, kind of um, framework agreements with suppliers. Um, and yeah, did that for for about six years, and then yeah, pr that was predominantly FM focused, and so that was kind of a natural transition into to what I've been doing for the last few years, which is yeah, category management in the FM space, um, which yeah takes us up to where where we are today. Um, I yeah, I'm, I'm a master's student as well, which is kind of the geekier side of of, of my interest here, which is um, trying to wrap my head around what's the what are the some of the differences we see in between best practices in physical supply chain management and service supply chain management um so in a lo very long story short the thing that fascinates me is we've got you know about 80 percent of gdp in developed economies comes from services more, typically more than half of third-party spend in you know large plcs the s p 500 essentially is with service providers and yet we have relatively low spend under management relatively low contract compliance um on on those third-party service agreements so the question for me is why you know what are the what are the fundamental differences there and that's kind of led me to this the, the outline of a book which i'm tentatively calling how to buy performance which is how do we how do we measure outsource service performance you know across a range of categories and and how does that differ from from goods and so there's a whole range of different factors i've looked at around the growth of services but also um a, a range of different um factors around the way that procurement interacts with the business which is what really is the most important piece for me because performance is is you know much more nebulous and, and difficult to define in a service context and being able to nail that down especially when we've got you know, output-based statement of work type agreements versus 
you know, traditionally what would have been time and materials based agreements, it becomes more and more challenging. And so, yeah, trying to develop kind of an overarching view of that and a methodology which may help close that gap is kind of the, the impetus for the for the book, which is, as I say, very much in its infancy, but uh, yeah, getting there step by step. I love your curiosity and I love the passion you put into it and you clearly um, have fantastic knowledge um, in this area and you're also you're delving deeper all the time. So I find it really interesting. And obviously we've we've spoken briefly before and, you know, immediately from my point of view, I just thought it would be a great conversation to share with people because I I thoroughly agree regarding the the, the gap that exists between measuring performance and buying performance in goods and the ability to be able to do that in services. It has all sorts of implications across um, the way that organizations culturally interact with their service providers, how they work operationally, how technology fits into the picture, um, how it ties into the strategy. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting area to discuss. And so for the, for the conversation today, we'll be taking the how to buy performance specifically through the lens of, of services procurement. Um, and I'm really glad you're doing this because, you know, there, there aren't that many people that are delving into this specifically in areas like services procurement. Um, and I think it's an area of growing interest. Like you say, there's so much spend going through uh, this type of engagement model. It's becoming more and more prevalent. And we can we can talk about um, some of those changes now, in fact, in, in terms of changes in the way, changes in the reasons why companies actually buy services. So in your view, what's changed um, in the way that companies buy services or the reasons that they buy services, sorry? Because um, I, I, if you take services on a very simplistic level, you could say it's just another means of getting work done. So you're getting things done, your work is being done. Um, 60 years ago, that would have just been everybody in a kind of nine to five job for life type situation. Why do you think this has changed? What, what's, what's the difference now? I think, I think we've, there's a few different factors, which basically everything that impacts uh, how we procure physical goods has a basically a lag effect in services, as far as I can see. So if you look at all the major trends from sort of the mid 20th century around outsourcing, globalization, especially to low cost manufacturing regions, you know, China being the obvious one, um, what, what effectively what you're seeing is um, the all of the, uh, the the best practice that follows on with that has firms focusing on a set of core competencies and then looking for strategic advantage from those core competencies and then looking for um, cost advantages on everything else. So um, you so you know if you look at a in a manufacturing context, you know Apple is probably the best example. They're they, they might have assembly in California, but a lot of the sub-assemblies and, and everything they do further upstream is manufactured overseas and, you know, imported into the U.S. and then finally assembled and, and sold. So so if you look at, uh, at globalization and outsourcing, what you've effectively got is easier access to lower labor costs, lower costs of capital, et cetera. And you've and you kind of been seeing that. We've been seeing that for decades. And in fact, I think now we're probably seeing um, the backlash and some of the repercussions of that, and we're seeing nearshoring now um, re-emerging as a, as a kind of a buzzword and a sourcing strategy rather than than you know far-shoring, offshoring, whatever we, we we used to call it. 
I think you, we, we've sort of gone from, if you, if you think about that period from sort of mid-century up until the end of the 20th century as the third industrial revolution, that is, we're starting to use computers, we're starting to use automation in a physical and a manufacturing context. We, we're sort of entering now the fourth industrial revolution is the, you know, is the, is the buzzword for it, where we're seeing that in a cognitive context as well. So we're seeing the emergence of remote work. We're seeing, you know, English is so prevalent now that you could basically hire from almost anywhere on earth and you'll find people speaking English that are able to, to, to engage with you as a supplier. Um, but also, yeah, increasing focus, I think, on looking for and you know this may be partially down to headcount constraints that some organizations have got so you're limited in terms of the F number of ftes it might be a requirement to convert fixed costs into variable costs whatever it might be we're seeing the same thing on the service side as well so looking to uh, to gain access to either low cost or greater expertise alternatives from the supply market rather than what we would traditionally have done which is look in-house as the as the main source for that and i think you know, COVID has just put that obviously on on at warp speed because of the massive shifts we've seen towards remote work. So that's it's much more, I think, acceptable to think that, you know, Silicon Valley, as an example, isn't is is likely no longer going to be the only place where you can find highly skilled developers and programmers and, and people in the tech field, because now, you know, you can effectively look to to almost anywhere. So, you know, I think that's that's that globalization piece is really important because you would, if you're looking at a global workforce, which is all on your payroll, you've got massive complications around tax. You know, you've got all sorts of, of complications around, you know, payroll taxes, how they're managed from an HR perspective. When you when you look at um, your supply chain, you've got a lot more flexibility around that. So you start looking at the globalization piece, the outsourcing piece. We're seeing demographic shifts as well. So there's a lot more pressure on public services. So we're seeing that in the private context and in the public context as well. But the, the one that's really interesting for me from an FM standpoint is around um, is around servitization. So I think, you know, I mean, Zivio is a perfect example of this. Zivio is a software as a service platform. So we're starting to see, I think, um, the manufacturers in the, in the traditional sense or developers, software developers that could be, you know, effectively you're seeing producers of of physical goods, software, services, whatever it is, trying to engage more with the end customer. So I'll give a perfect example, I think, to illustrate this. So Rolls-Royce, which distinct from Rolls-Royce luxury cars, Rolls-Royce obviously does a lot around um, around jet engines and around, especially in the marine space, um, they, I think that's about half of their revenue today, um, is, don't quote me on that, but somewhere in the region of 40 <laughs> to 50%. But they, so they do, they manage, yeah, exactly, we needed Jamie. <laughs> um, they they so they produce marine diesel marine engines that go into ships which are obviously critically important for for shipping container loads of goods all around the world um they they for a long time had this concept of power by the hour and right. a few years ago they they signed an agreement with um with a norwegian shipping line called nordline which is uh whereby they they effectively instead of selling the physical asset and then having third parties maintain that equipment they have they use internet of things to get sensors on that equipment and effectively lease it by the hour so that the, so the customer's only paying for what they use so if it's sitting in a dock they're not they're effectively you know that's idle time they're not paying for that capacity but also the manufacturer's got 
access through to enormous loads of data and can use predictive analytics to figure out when faults are going to occur and you know they've got much greater integration with that customer so that is that's a really kind of gray area and i guess we'll get onto this in a second but that's a really gray area then is that a physical good being supplied or is that a service you know from 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 both the perspective of the of the customer and the manufacturer that's a service agreement now because they're going to be measured on service levels rather than did they you know deliver the good on time was it to spec etc cetera, etc cetera. so so, so, so it's, an, it's an output it's an output that leads or it's a series of outputs that lead to an outcome effectively you're buying that's what you're buying rather than you're not just buying a thing you're buying power by the hour effectively exactly yeah, yeah. because i mean from the customer's perspective they don't necessarily want a a diesel engine or a diesel generator. What they want is to move goods quickly and cheaply into port so they can sell them to, to an end customer. That's the output they're looking for. And if Rolls-Royce can support that, you've got much greater integration of the value chain. And I'm sure, <clears throat> I'm sure we'll get onto this, but much greater integration of the buyer and the supplier. So supplier relationship management becomes you know, fundamental to making that that service supply chain function properly. So anyway, I've, that's that's some of the big picture stuff behind it. I think is you know globalization, outsourcing, a lot of the stuff we've seen in the physical world now has really taken off in in the services space. And I think have you ever read um, there's Tom Friedman's book, The World Is Flat? No. So he in the early I guess it was two thousand and four, five, six, somewhere around then. Um, he does you know a huge amount of of research on globalization and takes some some brilliant case studies yeah. from all over the world on, on exactly that. So call centers in India, or, you know, there's a, a great example is JetBlue. So they, they're headquartered in Salt Lake City, which is, um, is kind of a, um, is home to a large amount of the Mormon community in the States. And so because the CEO was a devout Mormon and very focused on, you know, family values and wanting parents to be around for the kids and that kind of stuff, he had people working out of their call center remotely as far back as like 2001 2002 wow and so yeah so he's tom friedman kind of goes into to exploring how this is working how they start to manage performance and so you know even at the employee level you're starting to see this shift as you said from from measuring bums on seats from measuring inputs to measuring outputs and having different performance criteria and that's that's kind of yeah again some of the things that got me thinking here around well, this, this trend is not going to stop. We're not, this isn't going to stop in 2022. You know, this is something that we need to be prepared for because I think that performance gap is going to get worse unless we can wrap our heads around how do we measure performance? How do we manage performance in a virtual global world where we've got access to talent, not just all over the world, but from, you know, from suppliers all over the world, from freelancers all over the world, from, you know, and there's, there's all sorts of implications around that, but what I'm specifically focused on is, you know, how do we manage performance? How do we, you know, specifically third-party service supplier performance? Yeah, and and so when you when you look at that shift from uh, input-driven to output-driven, um, I do think COVID had a massive effect on that. Just the lockdowns, remote working, having to spread out. But prior to that, there was the growth of the gig economy, which was also pushing more task-based, output-based buying of services, whether it's on a you know consumer level or a business level. Um, and yeah, I just think there was there was more of a shift in that direction happening anyway, um, partly due to things like talent shortages. 
you know, with the growth of like the high tech industries and, and you look where the focus is around things like cybersecurity and, and, and tech development and digital transformation, you know, just aren't, you can't necessarily find those experts within your workforce. You can't necessarily hire them. Um, so that was pushing this kind of outcome-based, outsourced, service-based agenda as well. Um, I also think there's, so, so there's kind of like a fundamental underlying change in the way that people work. Maybe there's, there's a kind of, um, it's a cultural change, but also just a change in what people, how people want to be measured and how people want to be recognised. So COVID made that really clear when it's like people are working from home. Well, what are they doing? Well, they might be taking the bins out, walking the dog, looking after their children, homeschooling, whatever. But it might be that they're still doing a really good job or maybe they're doing a better job, but they're doing it. They're fitting it in when they can and they're just fitting it around their life. Um, and I think people are starting to want to work differently, particularly when you get people who are in very uh, areas of high skill shortage. So take cybersecurity, for example. Do they want to work in a permanent job? Maybe, maybe not. Some of the everyone's everyone's different, obviously different personalities. But if you're highly in demand, then maybe you just want to focus on the things that you find particularly interesting, rather than being put into a situation where you have to work on stuff that's maybe a bit more um, you know, outside your real core area of interest, or maybe even outside your core area of specialism. So I feel like there's this general kind of societal trend towards output based. Um, but yeah, COVID had a COVID I think had a big big um, effect on that but when you look at so so that's the the supply side in terms of how people work and how people how people get things done but from a buyer's side um it feels like that has that shift was taking longer but it's been sped up by covid because um when we were talking before one of the points you made was that it's difficult for companies to move from an input based to an output based mentality do you want to just talk a little bit about your your thoughts in that area yeah, so this is um, th this is something I've, I've I've seen much more in practice than in than in some of the research that I've been doing. Is it's you know it's often um, it's often difficult to to get change implemented unless it's forced you know externally, which is what COVID is doing. So often there's an awful lot of work that has to be done around um, around figuring out how we are how we're going to measure um how a how a task gets done and that's that's i can't really speak to the hr piece you know the personnel piece is, is much more kind of your realm of expertise but looking at it from the from the sort of supplier engagement standpoint that what to, i think the kind of first phase of this was taking what would traditionally have been done in-house where the only measurement for that is number of hours yeah that, that that you know that someone's in you know that the actual performance during that time and, and how we measure productivity i think we are getting much better at that but typically you know the measure is the unit of measure is hours worked and then just taking that uh, taking that external and and measuring that based on you know that could be day rates hour rates whatever it is so essentially you're taking a task that would have been done in-house and outsourcing that and you know, there's we. I think there's a quite a clear distinction in the US typically between sort of 1099 and W2, and you've yeah. got kind of a, a clear line between that. In this country, I think that's obviously been blurry for quite a while, and you know, HMRC started to clamp down with the IR35 legislation and trying to trying to narrow that down. But but really, you know, that's 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 it's a good and a 
bad thing in a way, I think, because it's going to force companies that want to outsource by the task to start thinking more in terms of putting that into a, let's say, a performance-based spec instead of a conformance-based spec. So that could be a statement of work, a service level agreement, whatever it's going to be, something where we're measuring milestones, measuring outputs, rather than measuring inputs effectively. Um, and but to go back to kind of what I was saying before, if you it's it's usually very very challenging to um, to get in, to get stakeholders to look at uh, buying based on outputs, and still until we start seeing um, the cost of typically cost of labor, but the cost of that input going up without seeing a an equivalent increase in the performance we're trying to measure. So that could be. You know, for example, uptime on an asset in an FM context, or you know, uh, specific KPIs we're measuring around maintenance. But you know, from in a consulting or professional services context, that could be a sp particular success factor we're looking at for the business. So typically, you know, uh, a stakeholder will have a value driver they're looking at, whether it's operational, financial, it's some kind of strategic measure they're looking at, customer growth, whatever it is, revenue growth. And then based on that, they'll have a specific outcome they're looking for in the business, which might be a, you know, an OKR or a kind of a, a success metric they're looking at internally. Uh, and then, and I think, you know, there's, there's a growing realization that just having, uh, just having people work on a, on a project that's trying to deliver against that aim for a certain period of time, that typically leads to cost overrun and scope creep. Whereas if we can nail down, okay, what are the what are the specific milestones we're looking to achieve to drive towards those those the, the things that those stakeholders value most, those critical success factors, those OKRs, whatever it is, that's a that's that becomes a lot easier to manage. And I think that's that that for me is one of the one of the realizations I've had is that I think in a service context, procurement's role is much is much more about bridging that gap and realizing where where and how we measure value from the supply market. You know, why aren't we doing this in-house? Why are we looking for specific expertise from the supply market, whatever it is, and trying to be able to bridge that gap goes a long way to, to towards um, effectively marrying the internal objectives we've got and what we're expecting of the supplier. And that obviously, that naturally evolves way beyond just measuring headcount, measuring, you know, measuring by hours, by FTEs, whatever it, you know, whatever the equivalent might be. So, so quick question for you on that. In terms of managing the internal objectives, when you have a a, a labour based situation, then do you think that requires the same clarity in what those internal objectives are versus when you're going to be outsourcing the problem? Um. Historically, I would have said no, but I think that is—I do think that is changing. I think we see more, more and more. I mean, even in the last sort of 12, 15 years, like even since I've, you know, been working on some of this, I think internally we see a lot more. Um, you see a lot more delegation of responsibility to the employee from the manager, you know, in the traditional sense. Uh, and there's a there's a much greater expectation on the employee to take responsibility for achieving specific objectives. Whereas historically, I you know I, I don't know wasn't working in the 1960s, but I can imagine that you know you you wouldn't have seen that to the same extent you do today. 
And I think that's largely because there's a greater, well, you know, at least let's say in, in sort of in the West in quotes, there's a much greater focus from an HR standpoint on creating a culture of autonomy where, you know, where employees feel much, much more engaged and they can connect the tasks that they're doing and, you know, the work that they're working on to, and project they're completing to specific outcomes for the organization. They feel a lot, you know, a greater sense of engagement and connection with, with the, with the organizations they're working with. Um, you know, I think, so I think that is, that is, that is changing and, and helping here as well. And that's, that doesn't just stay within the walls of the firm. I think, I think, you know, a, a lot of times suppliers realize that customer engagement, you know, I think whether, whether that's, you know, in a B2C context, or I think more importantly, for what we're talking about here in a B2B context, making sure that we've got, you know, real long-standing relationships with customers is critical because, you know, organizations typically spend a lot more to find new customers than they do to maintain their existing ones. The same thing's true from a, you know, from a supply management or a sourcing context as well. I think when we, re we realized that um, greater supplier engagement and, and having suppliers connected to the outcomes we're trying to achieve, and that can be incentivized as well. You can have, you know, performance-based metrics and even performance-based payment in, contra in contracts that align incentives. I think we're sort of seeing some of that same trend that you know I just described internally start to translate into supplier relationship management as well. So there's you know just 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 I think that's a really fascinating point. So so I would agree with you that that companies do this far better now with their you know internal with their employees and and with their you know where, where they use contract workers and other time and materials workers they're better at connecting that to productivity it's still not the same as saying get that job done and it'll cost x but it's getting much closer but i think you know the the point you made about the kind of flow down of autonomy and people being hopefully in good companies and i you would think this would have to happen more and more for companies to survive in the modern age is for individuals working within an organization to feel inherently connected to the overall strategy in the sense that they can understand how what they're doing um contributes towards that overall strategy, gives meaning to their work, um, you know, adds so much to the um, that employment of feeling like you're part of something, you're delivering on objectives, you're working on a journey with a group of other people aiming towards an objective. Where that, so that lends itself very nicely to helping companies transition more to saying, what is it that we need to get done? Because I feel like that's something that companies are getting better at, but I, I still think they need to get better at it more so with uh, in services specifically, because as you said, it's very nebulous, it can be quite vague, it's so varied. How do you tie it down? What's actually being done? What's actually being delivered in a piece of consulting, for example? So the fact that organizations and employees are moving more towards that mindset, I would imagine that's only gonna help with supplier relationships because you're on the same page. The supplier knows, um, you know, they, they need to do a good job because the internal buyers are savvy to what it is they actually want. Um, and likewise, the internal buyers and procurement appreciate the actions of the services supplier because they've achieved an objective that they know is important and it, it, they've done what they need to do. Um, I still feel like that situation I've just described is a bit of a panacea that we haven't quite reached yet. Um, but it, it sounds like from your perspective, you're seeing these two things coming together more. Yeah. Um, 
so I think there's it's funny because I'm trying to relate it to in a general sense to all professional services and outsourced services but typically a lot of the the uh, agreements and the the um the relationships that I've managed are longer term and one thing that that's really interesting you said there is that you know internal buyers often know exactly what they want and if and that that might be true for us for a you know for an individual buyer but often for when we're managing uh when we're trying to translate that into outcomes that we need a supplier to achieve you've got multiple different stakeholders and you know you, you may have a you may have an outcome that the that the business or the stakeholder is trying to achieve but actually breaking that down and putting that into the actual KPIs that we need to have met over the next 12 months from this supplier or the key milestones that we need to have achieved by X date on, you know, on this project that we're going to put into the, to the statement of work, you know, that that's much more challenging. And actually, I don't know if you ever heard of, heard of this, but in IT, they've got this concept of the watermelon effect. You ever come across this? Describe that. I was just about to, I was just about to kind of, uh, kind of relate this to basically sprints within an agile process where you're right. effectively iteratively you're working out what you need to do by the time you get to the next point uh, what, what's the watermelon effect so the watermelon effect you know if you slice a watermelon open obviously it's green on the outside red on the inside and yeah. so it from a performance management standpoint what that what what that means and I've, you know i've experienced this in in the past we've had what we've you know a dashboard of great looking metrics with the supplier but we've still had internal dissatisfaction from stakeholders. This is going back a few years, but um, but yeah, perfect perfect uh, example of this. Um, and so yeah, it's it's effectively what I think it sounds like, which is you've got um, you've got the supplier delivering on what they what they are contractually obliged to deliver on, but you haven't got alignment with the with the outcomes that the business is trying to achieve. So there's effectively a gap between out output from the supplier and the outcomes that the business is trying to achieve and that's you know there's many reasons for that partly you know as i say in longer term engagements the scope of work and the, the service levels that we're trying to maintain might evolve over time you might have changing requirements within the business especially nowadays with how you know how, how quickly things change how financial priorities shift etc um but uh, but yeah actually i i think one of the as you said, one of the um, one of the, the main ways to counter that is to take a more agile approach and try and break things down, even in longer term agreements, to specific things we're trying to achieve in much smaller time periods, and yeah, effectively create a series of sprints that get you from stage to stage, rather than you know these multi year agreements where you know as I say things change over time and you can start getting a a wider and wider gulf between the the supplier on one side who's you know who who thinks they're delivering to to spec and the stakeholder on the other side whose requirements need to be better translated into those into those agreements and that's that's part of i think the key value proposition for procurement in a service context and that's what i think we need to sort of wrap our head around because that's going to get more and more complex as we start looking at outsourcing more and more output-based work so based on a statement of work you know etc so so if you look at that scenario where we're talking about a kind of iterative process would you agree that to 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 buy performance or to 
to to have performance as the the uh, the aim to buy performance, you need definition, capture, and delivery, and you need to be able to see all of those things, and they need to they need to match up. You need to measure them. So that doesn't matter whether that's happening upfront and that's for the lifetime of the project, or whether it's happening on an iterative basis. As long as there is clear definition of the objectives. There's clear capture and acceptance and obviously contracting around that, whether it's the original contract, whether it's a variation order change in the contract, whatever it might be. Um, and then there's delivery against those objectives. Then you can have this flexible kind of movable feast that both parties are in alignment on. Um, and you can you can audit that alignment and make sure it's happening in the way that it should do. Um, if you can if you can do those simple things definition capture delivery then that feels like that's at the core of, of solving this problem really would you agree absolutely yeah i mean this is part of the beauty of yeah, this won't be a surprise to you but obviously i'm a big fan of zivio and and some of the things you guys are trying to achieve and that that Cheers. for me is fundamental you know it's like the old peter drucker quote what gets measured gets managed if you have if you if you're speaking a different language to between your stakeholders and the and your suppliers um and you know there's there are there are ways other than technology where i think procurement can um can better engage with both of those groups and and bring them together but technology is fundamental here because you have to have um you have to have clear and precise ways of communicating the value that we're trying to drive for the business and translating that into uh, into you know actual performance targets for the supplier and that could be performance in terms of actually actually doing something or it could be performance in terms of actually achieving an aim which is you know, very complex and involves thousands and thousands of individual tasks um, or it could be even you know just achieving performance on an asset that's owned by the by the supplier but yeah go go back to it, especially the definition part that that is it's not easy is it no no because you you've quite you know, as, as well as the fact that things are quite often changing over the lifetime of a project, you've also got um, you've also got a situation, I think, where you've got uh, value drivers for the for the business that you're trying to translate into uh, into achievable outcomes for the for the supplier to put into a contract. But the, the more and more you shift those value drivers upstream, the more and more risk is shifting onto the supplier, which typically comes with a higher cost. So you've got, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a movable feast. Um, but, but yeah. So, um, I mean, 100% in agreement. And I think this is one of the fascinating things for me from a technology point of view. If you look at the difference between goods versus services, breaking it down very, very simply, I think procurement of goods is, is a solved problem. To a, to a large extent, where you've got the, you know, to a certain extent, this binary transaction, um, and you can engage things like catalog buying, guided buying, there's a lot of complexity in the supply chain, which has to be considered. Um, but I feel like that's very much a solved problem from a technology point of view. I feel like the, you can't apply the same approach to buying goods from a technology perspective, to, and just map that straight onto services because you don't usually have so much complexity in the supply chain on the services side, but you have far more complexity and nuance um, in this 
buying this nebulous thing, which is quite hard to tie down, therefore quite hard to measure, could change along the way. It's just a lot more kind of work involved. But it, but that's why, from my point of view, I'm very passionate that that's a specific problem to solve. Um, but, but just going back to um, what you were talking about, definitions and stuff there. So, so let's have a quick look at who the key buyers are here, um, but also how they can interact with their suppliers. Because one of the things that I, I believe happens a lot is suppliers can be instrumental in helping buyers define their requirement. Now, it depends how you do that. If you're just going out to one supplier and you, it's just the supplier that you use all the time, then you know, there's a chance they might lead you down the garden path a little bit. If they hold the expertise, you might end up paying for you know buying something that's much bigger than you need and paying for some, much more for something than you actually need. But if you're actively engaging with your supplier population in a meaningful way, and you're trying to define something that the buyer is not the subject matter expert in, and maybe that company doesn't hold that kind of subject matter expertise, they're going out to experts to say, how should we solve this problem? And, you know, I, I've seen that work through the RFX process where, where that is very, very well supported. Um, but let, talk to me about who you think the key buyers are, because you've made some points on that in the past. And I think they're really interesting ones that sometimes get missed. But when it comes to services, where should the focus be on who the key buyers are? Right. So I think I think it's worth distinguishing between I talk a lot about internal buyers and stakeholders. And I think they're not always the same thing. So in a in a physical supply chain, I think, you know, I, I get what you're saying about the technology piece around physical supply chains being a sole problem. I think there are there's a, a huge amount of complexity on a whole range of topics that I'm not even tangentially involved in typically. Um, but but yeah, certainly from uh, from from experience if you you know working with a piece of erp software or a you know procure to pay suite often a lot of the work around uh around measuring supplier performance cannot be encapsulated into a couple of lines in a purchase order there's a lot of work that has to go on behind the scenes but but yeah anyway to get back to the point um i think Oftentimes in a physical supply chain, what you have is effectively a series of dyadic relationships, dyadic meaning two parties. So you've got, you've effectively got, you know, raw materials to manufacturer, manufacturer to distributor, distributor to wholesaler, wholesaler, retailer, retailer, end customer, for example. And it, of course, it's not actually that simple because the actual physical supply chain is made up of a, a thousand different service supply chains as well. But to break it down really simply, in a service supply chain, especially in a business to business context, you'll typically have supplier, buyer, but the buyer will not often be the one who's experiencing service delivery. Because, you know, typically if you're if you're buying a good, you you are you've got a physical product where you you know it let's say in a consumer context, I order something off Amazon, Amazon delivers it to my house. I know exactly what to expect. It turns up. And as long as it's not damaged or late, I'm probably going to be relatively happy. In a service context, you've got buyer supplier, but you've also got supplier to a third party. So let's say, for example, you outsource a catering agreement. I, you know, I, as the buyer, may be responsible for sourcing that supplier, selecting them, Managing the contract, managing performance, developing the relationship, managing any you know contractual disputes, etc. But it's you know I, I may be one of five thousand people who actually goes into the cafeteria and buys lunch. 
And so the experience of service performance is usually experienced by a third party as well. So that becomes quite, that, that's challenging enough in, in and of itself. So how, how then do you make sure you capture the requirements, both of the internal buyer and also of that third party stakeholder? Um, and, you know, there are, there are lots of good ideas around this, but figuring out how to capture that and put that into a dashboard so that you really do have a comprehensive 360 view of how all the suppliers performing is easier said than done. So, so yeah, man, making sure we can, you, you've basically got, um, you know, it could be a net promoter score, customer satisfaction, it could be sales levels, you know, there's all kinds of different metrics you can look at, but there's got to be a way to make sure that you're capturing the key value drivers for who's for people who are experiencing the service as well as the internal buyer. And that's, that's a massive oversimplification because of course there are, you know, there's, there are, there are external stakeholders. There are, you know, there's probably 10 other stakeholders within the organization who are concerned about the performance of the contract. So yeah, it gets, it gets messy very quickly and figuring out how to distill that down and get all those requirements into a, into a, you know, into a dashboard is, is, you know, part of the what will be the third part that goes into the book and figuring out you know how do you how do you distill that and break that down when on time and full delivery is not the key metric that drives performance you know yeah and i think with what you described there um you know it can be frighteningly complex but but that's why i believe the problems haven't been solved effectively thus far because they are complex problems to solve. They are difficult problems to solve. Um, so, so when you look at that scenario where, you know, who is the buyer? So quite often procurement might be seen to a certain extent as a buyer, but, you know, as you've said before, the buyers are often in a more of an operational role. Um, so you could have that kind of triadic type relationship just in that context. But also when you look at, for example, you know, an outsourced um, catering service, then you've got the end customer as well. But but ultimately, it's all about working out still the same thing of defining what it is you want um, and then capturing it and making sure that delivery is consistent between the two. Um, if you can work out what you want to measure, there will be a way to measure it where I think where the industry is right now is is so immature in terms of measuring this, that there are massive gains to be made without having to boil the ocean and completely solve everything all at once. Um, because when you're in a situation where it's such a difficult problem to solve, what, what we certainly typically see in a lot of cases is that there might be some organization and compliance around the point to the point of contracting. But after that point, there's, there's almost nothing. And if it's, if it's tail spend that falls below a procurement threshold, then, then there's there's very little at all in terms of knowledge of what's going on. So there's just kind of a black hole, basically. Um, so so even just upping the standards to understanding a bit more definition in the first place and actually holding suppliers to account um, is can make a huge difference. But also in a lot of cases, there's very little competitive supplier activity going on, um, and and I feel like that's where procurement can there are various areas that procurement can really help those buyers, but culturally, sometimes you get the feedback that operational people within organizations see procurement as a blocker. But if people are being empowered by their organization to contribute to the overall strategy and that understand how what they're doing is meaningful in 
the, the company's goals, then surely that if, if there's the right relationship with procurement, that should motivate them to try and get the value out of procurement that they can around helping them define it effectively, helping them make sure they're getting the best price for the company, helping make sure they're getting the best service delivery for the company. It feels like there's some good things that can, can happen out of these changes. Uh, yeah, you just there's a lot of things there that I um, <laughs> that I, I can touch on because there's that some of that is really really important. So going back to what you started saying there, which was around the you know around the solutions here. So the the thing that I cannot um, I, I can't quite wrap my head around is the, you've you've got a, a huge amount of services spend and growing. And we're looking to outsource more. And we've got more opportunities to get access to niche skills that we really need in, in a you know in an environment where technology is everything. And you know we need to we need to get access to uh, to specialist um, specialist. You know you mentioned cybersecurity earlier on, but the, all the stuff that's being developed around Web 3.0 and how you know how that's going to impact the way that that you know we interact with technology. There's that is I think in the next ten years we, we're going to be blown away by how quickly that grows but yeah the question for me is then is there is a low-hanging fruit around around uh around performance management there and i i think there's got to be some hesitance hesitancy from organizations who you know maybe haven't seen traditional erp solutions as this panacea that they thought it once was and actually we're probably going to have to look at a multitude of different uh, different smaller options, you know, SaaS solutions probably being the the most logical because really, you know, the the uh, the it scales, right? I mean, everything's based on based on you know even in on, in an enterprise context, it's very easy to scale that from a small team and and you know run pilot programs to to roll that out you know all over the world if you're a global organization. But um, but yeah, I think it is it is really really surprising to me that there isn't a not just from a technology standpoint but also from a research standpoint they just you know a lot of the a lot of the thinking around supply chain management today is focused still on you know on on that on the physical side and that's why i think this is just such a huge opportunity you know i think um we, there's just that as i say i think i don't think these trends stop in 2022 we need to be you know prepared to um to be able to tackle these problems for the foreseeable future but Going to the second point, you know, it's it's really interesting that we do a lot of the stuff at the during the sourcing process. You know, pre-contract award. I think procurement tends to do quite well, but on the services side, we don't necessarily have the the remit to tackle as much as we do on the physical goods side. So there's there's research from mid '90s, Fearon and Bales, a couple of academics who looked at the S and P 500, and they they basically found that um that america's largest firms spend about 60 percent of their third-party spend with service providers but procurement managed less than a third of that under management so you've got a huge gap in terms of where procurement may be able to add value by greater governance you know implementing process whatever it might be but i think the challenge is kind of twofold historically as you say procurement has been at best maybe a gatekeeper in some of these categories and at worst maybe a bottleneck you know i don't i don't i don't want to be uncharitable but you know i think in, in some cases we're kind of seen to slow things down where stakeholders want to get projects launched as quickly as possible and you know 
Well, I think we need to be much better at communicating procurement's value proposition. And what, to me, what that means is we need to, you know, I think firstly, we need to act, realize that our, our first sale is, is, you know, within the organization rather than with the, with the supply market. You know, we need to act much more as sort of internal consultants than as, you know, a, a very a kind of transactional function that we are, we're trying to force stakeholders to, to use. I don't think that's, that's a winner. That might work in a commodity setting where we know we've got the best price. We can quite easily manage supplier performance. We've got, you know, fantastic agreements that, that we can easily demonstrate value on. Um, but that's much more difficult in a service context. And I think we need to, we need to realize that we, we need to be a trusted partner to the business rather than, you know, just saying, you know, we've got, we might have a fantastic agreement on paper, but services, service relationships are much more personal than that. We can't, you know, you can't, you can't mandate and force compliance in a service context. Um, the, the, another thing that you mentioned, which was really interesting is, you know, post-contract, and I think this is another, another thing, going back to sort of the watermelon effect, post-contract, there was some, uh, a study that I've seen from Shelby Group, PwC have got similar data, that anywhere from sort of 16 to 20% of long-term outsourcing agreements leak value over the long term. So if you, you know, you can imagine if you bought, if you thought you were paying, you know, 40,000 pounds for a car, and you actually got to the to the dealership and they charge you fifty, you would not be very happy. But the exact same thing is happening here in in long term outsourcing agreements, and and you know being able to to close that gap, I think, will go a long way to to demonstrating procurement's value proposition as a a long term you know delivering long term value, not just on in terms of savings that we can de demonstrate on day one, but in terms of actually driving driving value into the PL, which is you know historically has been a bit of a challenge is trying to translate what we see on a you know in a savings report into what the cfo sees at the end of the year when they reconcile their, their accounts so uh, and i sometimes wonder you know how much do the cfos see you know if they're if they're looking back at supplier performance with the current information that most organizations have are they even going to know that there have been those cost overruns you know, or, or, or are they just going to know how much they've spent with particular suppliers? You know, and that that's just, um, they're completely hamstrung without any of that information. Because where there are these cost overruns, maybe there's very good reasons for it. But if it comes as a shock, there's going to be a negative feeling towards the supplier. So if, you know, company looks at, at consultancy A and says, okay, over the last year, how much have we spent with them? How much did we contract originally? And how much did it end up being? Oh, they're, you know, they're underbidding and they're always over, you know, it's always overrunning. But there might be very good reasons. The organization might have been ineffective internally in supporting what they were doing. If that information is captured post-contract in an iterative manner where it's all being agreed as we go, we've agreed we're going to do this, it's going to cost that. Um, okay, this has changed. You guys have taken longer on that. There's a situation that's arisen. You've put this on the back burner for a while, resource constraints, whatever it might be. So actually now it's going to be slightly changed, but it's going to cost this everyone's happy, we agree it, we move on. Or actually the scope has expanded. We've now realized from the pilot phase, this new product um, conversation we're happy, having is looking really exciting. So we want to double its scope. If all of those things are actually captured along the way, then theoretically everyone should be A, informed and B, happy, as long as at every stage, both parties are agreeing to what's being contracted and 
the delivery is is being um, is happening in a manner that's consistent with that. Um, but I just I just think people have just no visibility at all on that at the moment. It, it's there's so much ground to go. I think that these improvements can be just absolutely transformative for organisations. Um, just to go back to another thing you were saying, talking about the proportion of spend that is services in. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure it's. I think that report you were saying was in the mid to late nineties. In my, I would imagine it would have grown significantly since then. But when you look at developing countries as well, and and the growth that's going to happen in in uh, developing nations, I think that's a factor that 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 needs to be considered as well. In the sense that this problem isn't going to go away; it's going to get bigger. And actually, organisations and the way that we buy services just needs to be more sophisticated. Because the services that you're buying are sophisticated, the world that we're operating in is sophisticated. You know, goods, good. There's a huge complexity in effective supply chain management of goods and logistics and distribution and all of that stuff. Um, but there's, but there's also real sophistication in what you're buying from a services point of view. So um, it can feel incredibly, it, it can feel like a problem that's so difficult to address. But it has to be addressed because there's so much money involved in it and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But actually, there are quite simple, logical steps that can be taken um, that even if, you know, your definitions are, are improving by 50 percent or 20 percent or 10 percent, even you're potentially going to make a big gain. If your measurement of objectives, measurement of contract changes is improving by 10 percent, 20 percent or you're only capturing a, a incremental um, levels of additional spend under management. There's just massive gains to be made because it, all of this stuff just feels like it's really sloppy in a lot of organisations at the moment where, you know, there's very little competitive um, process around services in some cases. And procurement can't really keep control of it because it's just all over the place and they maybe don't have the right systems or the right process or the right mandate internally. Or maybe they don't. The, the relationship isn't seen in that way and people are just trying to get around them the whole time. But it can't it can't go on like that forever. Because another thing that COVID did is it put cost pressures on organisations where they have to say, how much are we spending on all of these different things? Oh, we're spending a massive amount on consulting and professional services. What are we getting for that? Pretty difficult to answer. So do you just cut costs or do you actually look at the value? Is that driving our bottom line? Is that driving growth? In which case should we, we invest more and work with the best suppliers? Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, I think it's just such a massive opportunity, really. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when you when you talk there about cost pressures during during COVID and not not just not just reducing total costs but also think how quickly, especially the hospitality sector, it just had to effectively switch off and and, and back on again. And so I think there's going to be even more pressure to realise that translating fixed costs into variable costs yeah. is 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 you know is one way to manage risk in some of these some of these industries. Um, but you know, yeah, as you say, are we are we just going to to continue to drive down costs, or are we going to you know this is something that's talked about in every procurement and supply chain publication every single week, pretty much is moving beyond cost, even beyond total cost of ownership to overall enterprise value. And so, even if we can, even if we can measure that, and even if we can figure out that yes, cost overruns here, scope creep here, you know, we manage all these changes, and we we have great collaboration with the account managers and the project managers on the on the supplier side. 
even if we do a fantastic job with all of that, it's the, the question to me then is still, okay, that's on a single project, but as you know, unless you're in a single source situation or you're dealing with a monopoly supply market, presumably you've got more than one supplier in this category. So if you can standardize the metrics there, can you start to benchmark performance between suppliers? Because that then becomes stage two. It's like, you know, for, as you said earlier on, how much visibility does the CFO have over, you know, an individual, you know, an individual case, supplier category, or, you know, when it actually gets to the PL, you know, in my experience in smaller organizations, actually, in some cases, quite a lot, the larger it gets. I, I don't know, I would, you know, I, I'd be skeptical. But, um, but the, you know, the, I think, so step one is sort of getting getting transparency around that. But then step two is, well, what do we do with that information? What do we, now that we're able to capture and clarify metrics, we're able to define performance better. What do we do around that? You know, is it, can we then compare value, the value to cost ratio from different suppliers? Can we start to, you know, this is, this is much more sophisticated, I think, than, 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 than we, you know, we've historically done and perhaps we're ready for. I think we need, you know, perhaps a, a new set, a new framework, a new kind of um, set of assumptions around how procurement has to um, has to relate to the organization and to service suppliers in order to get there. And that's why, you know, I'm trying to build out a kind of a model around how we might get there. And the first is the, the acronym I'm using is RAMP. The first one, R, is the, around the role of procurement. So it's, as I was saying earlier on, you know, evolving from a kind of that kind of gatekeeper mindset to more of a kind of consultative selling mindset and working more as an internal partner. And that that's the reason I've got that at the start of that process is because that I think is, you know, is 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 fundamental. Um and, and you know, we we need to have greater trust and engagement with those internal stakeholders so that we can, you know, we can gain the trust to start to to break down their value drivers into into those metrics but yeah i mean i couldn't agree more with you i think you know this is just the, just the amount of value to be captured no matter what direction we take to get there is at, is just enormous you know whether that's on increasing compliance and spend under management or the performance of existing supplier agreements it's just it's we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg i think yeah and so so one of the things you talked about there was the um the kind of organizations having to have like flexible costing models and flexible um, resourcing models to a certain extent to deal with market fluctuations. But that also naturally lends itself towards a real solid core of employees and then flexible options around that in terms of getting work done and having services delivered. Um, one of the things that we've touched on, and I, I guess this is really the watermelon, um, is the, the perception gap where, you know, you might think you're measuring something and getting getting a good result from it but somebody somewhere else might be um, indirectly unhappy with that so i think that's that that's a, a good one that we've covered off but when you talk about measuring supplier performance and you know then getting into the you're then getting into the really exciting stuff so from my point of view from a technology perspective what i'm really passionate about is being able to measure return on investment and work out who your best suppliers are and ultimately for organizations to say what's the most effective use of our resources you can do it. I believe you can do it because you can capture relatively simple quantitative metrics and flexible qualitative metrics around the delivery of every service that you procure. 
So if you are genuinely capturing what it is that was uh, supposed to be delivered and any changes that happen to that along the way, and then being able to say on a milestone basis, for example, was that milestone delivered you know, on time to budget? How much scope creep was there? Those are quali uh, quantitative metrics that can be captured against a project, taking into account changes. Um, if you then layer on qualitative feedback from the buying stakeholders, so that could be the, um, the operational um, business stakeholder who's buying those um, catering services, and it could also be feedback, you know, in terms of scoring, et cetera, quality scoring, or, or um, you know, how sa satisfaction levels from customers that are using that canteen. There are ways to capture that, and there are ways to pull that together to score companies in terms of how you weight the qualitative versus the quantitative. We're doing some cool stuff with AI around that. We have this SPX metric, which is exactly that, supplier performance management. So, so ultimately, you can then compare suppliers against each other. If you look at it in services, it's very, very complicated because every potentially every project is different. Every service is, is slightly different. So it's very difficult to say this these guys were more expensive than those guys because they're doing different things. But you can say, how did you perform against what you said you were going to do? Um, and how so did you do what you said you were going to do? And did you do a good job? If you can capture those things, then you can do comparative supplier performance. You can categorize it. You can break it down. And in that case, organizations have this giant opportunity where they can look across their supply base and actually be more open minded about it and not just necessarily go with the big guys that they always use. Because they might say, well, we've got the supplier over here who's doing a great job in that category, say marketing services. Why are we using these people over here that we normally use in finance? in marketing services, because these people have a higher score, they're actually do, giving us better value for money. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's huge opportunity around that. And once you get into that side of things, then you can start, you obviously have retrospective information, and you can start making predictive insights as to, for a particular type of requirement that comes up, which, type, which suppliers are likely to be the ones you want to bring into a bidding process around that. So I'm kind of leaping ahead into the, the, the perfect future there a little bit. But as long as you can start capturing data, quantitative and qualitative information, then you can get a fix on, did they do what they said they were going to do? And, and do we feel that they did a good job? Yeah, yeah, I think that they, because it, it is, it, it's funny, if, if I call, if I find, a, if I've got a problem with my, I don't know, what's a good example? I've got a problem with my computer and I call a call center, they might answer the phone on time, they might get the, they might get a, um, they, they might diagnose the problem quickly and they might, you know, send me a replacement on time, you know, so it, they could, they could hit all the targets from a, from a quantitative, quantitative standpoint. But if, if they're rude on the phone, I'm, you know, I still might be unhappy. So that, you know, it's, you know, it, it is more, you know, unfortunately it's a little, there are a lot of gray areas around how we manage that performance, but, it's you know we do have to have um, we do have to have agreements with the business and with the supplier on how we do that. Otherwise, we will never have an you know a, a even if it's not purely a mostly objective standard around how we're evaluating supply performance. Um, and you know it's going back a few years, and there was kind of there was the same thing was happening on the um, on the sort of the in the FMCG space and in the B two C space around. Well, how do you measure customer satisfaction on a broad scale when 
sales growth and revenue isn't giving you enough information. And Bain & Co basically broke it down to one simple metric, which is, would you be, you know, the net promoter score, would you be, how likely would you be to recommend using us again? And they literally broke it down on a scale of one to 10, and then they, they collect millions and millions and millions of responses, and they start to produce an indicator of a company's growth over the next 18 months. So I'm not saying we need anything quite that simplistic, but it does show that there are, you can start to adopt very simple universal measures that might be the start of what could be a very long process towards, you know, standardizing some of the, the performance uh, in this area. But, you know. Yeah, I, I think also, so just to throw this into the mix, what if you, what if you didn't need to standardize it? So, so there are certain things that are st- going to be standard anyway, and they're the kind of quantitative metrics that are, was, was the milestone delivered on time, on budget, and was, was there any scope creep, um, how much scope creep? Um, so those are things that are kind of like data points that can be captured automatically, when, obviously when you're kind of putting this sort of stuff through technology. Um, but say, for example, the, so the other side of it is the um, um, qualitative criteria, but they could be different for each project. Um, so for one project, it might be that the, the buyer is very interested in um, the, the supplier being a, a diverse and sustainable supplier um, and having a um, sustainable second tier supply chain, um, even in services. Um, but in another project, it might be about um, communications and um, speed of delivery or something like that. But, but for the buyer, those are still the qualitative factors that they are saying at the beginning of the, of the process, these are important to me. So if those are defined at the beginning of the process, the way that we work is you define the quality criteria during the um, requirements phase, effectively. So you can define what you want to measure and you can that could be very much free form, but you're still capturing a measure of quality. So say, for example, you pick five criteria and you weight them and then you score each one, one to five you have an aggregate quality score and you have an aggr- aggregate quantitative score, you can still combine that. So it allows that sort of flexibility because maybe that's the way to do it, but you know, maybe it isn't. And in some circumstances and in some organizations, you're right, there will be a need for standardization. But I think it's not, if you can, if you can engage in this definition capture process, um, it's, it, it can be more fluid because at least you're saying, this is what I want, and did I get it or not? Um, so I think it's a fascinating area. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention was that I think there's a great opportunity for procurement here as well. And, and we've talked about how um, you know the, the perception of procurement and how they fit into the organisation um, from a buyer's perspective and supplier's perspective. I, I think there's a real opportunity there because procurement are in this luxurious position where they see both sides of the process. So in a supplier engagement, they might be looking at the internal stakeholders thinking, my God, these guys are making a total mess of it. The, the supplier's trying to do this. They're always late. There's, there's, you know, they're, they're getting it all wrong. They're saying they're going to deliver stuff so that the supplier can do the next step and they're not doing it. There's, there's these things that, that procurement has oversight of that very few parts of the organization will have oversight of. So I think that they can really play a critical role in acting as the intermediary between the buyer and the supplier and it's more than just beating the supplier up on price it's it's everyone being honest and upfront in the sense that the company wants to achieve its objectives with the best possible value for money but everyone's got to do their everyone's got to be playing their part 
Otherwise, that can give you a skewed view. You might be ditching off a really good supplier or they might be getting fed up with working with you and, and not really want to, you know, not really want to engage with you as a, as a, as a buyer. Um, so I, th- I feel like there's an opportunity for, for procurement itself. And also in terms of just kind of like you capture this data, whoever owns this data <laughs> is in a pretty uh, important position. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely true. Um, and I think going, going back to your first point, I think, I think you're right. You know, if you being, being, um, being in a position where you've got, you know, you're effectively interface between the, between two different firms. Right. Um, I think, like you said, it's, it's not just about, um, about looking to, to penalize and punish suppliers that are not meeting expectations. It's about looking at the relationship more holistically and saying, well, okay, let's take, you, you know, um, if we've got a, an agreement with a supplier where we are relying on their expertise, then to use the buzzword that, that seems to be, you know, used all over the place, but very rarely defined, I think, is we may be relying on them for specific innovation, right? So we might be looking to improve an internal process, if they, you know, especially for consultants, we might be looking to embed, you know, there might be a systems integrator looking to embed certain you know, different technologies, and this may give us a competitive advantage. If you take a very kind of transactional arms, arms length relationship with that supplier, you, you haven't got incentives, incentives aligned well enough that they will want to provide that innovation. You haven't got, you know, you, you're basically setting them up to minimize risk. You're not setting them up to maximize enterprise value, to maximize innovation, which might lead to you know, revenue growth or you know, entering new market spaces, whatever it might be. And so I think that's that's an, another crucial part here is I don't think we've we've really um, we've really thought enough about um, you know procurement as not as gatekeeper to the external market but as an an interface an intermediary and a and a kind of you know a, a relationship manager on both sides to the external market we've got to really really think about managing that relationship more again to use a buzzword holistically think about it from the supplier's perspective what is how can we incentivize the supplier to make sure to to do the right thing so that they want to you know, meet all the objectives we've set out in the statement of work, meet all those key milestones, you know, so they really are, um, they, they really are driven to produce the results that the organization wants to achieve. So that's, that's, I think, another, another area where, you know, again, post-contract when it comes to supplier management, that's an area where I think there's, there's, again, massive value to be added. But, and again, you know, it also, again this is a, a nuance i think between service supply chains and goods supply chains if you think about the way the, the the sort of the flows in a physical supply chain historically you would think about i would think about anyway the flow of physical materials so that's you know boxes of stuff being transferred from a manufacturer downstream to a customer the flow of uh, money so usually that's payments transferring upstream in the supply chain or downstream in the term in in, you know, if there's a return or something like that, and but then also information. And so what we what we've seen, um, you know, the the typical uh, term is the bullwhip effect. I'm not sure if you ever ever heard of that, but basically, information distortion amplifies as it gets upstream, and that means that you typically a small uh, shift in demand at the customer level leads to wild swings in inventory levels for the for the manufacturer, um, which is you know a very expensive problem. And that's something that you know they 
we typically invest a lot of time and attention into resolving. Um, but in, in a service or an information supply chain, those flows, you know, if, if goods and funds or goods and money are primary in a, in a physical supply chain, in a services supply chain, I think that's the reverse is almost true. And this is going to be even more, you know, as things like blockchain technology becomes more widely adopted and, you know, we start seeing just the, the prevalence of data availability everywhere. It's going to be information that becomes primary. It's going to become, it's going to be data. And, you know, going back to the start of the conversation around, you know, uh, Rolls-Royce power by the hour, that's, you know, data there is if you don't have access to data in real time, they cannot predict a potential fault, which could be a massively expensive problem. You know, the, the data is absolutely crucial there. You know, everything else can kind of can kind of be be managed, right? We can we can access supplier financing. You can you know, there's all sorts of stuff you can do around around the the, the funds and the and the, the financial piece. And you know, obviously in a service supply chain, the physical flow of materials is becomes less relevant, but it's information that becomes absolutely critical. And so, you know, there's a good reason that. Google's worth nearly two trillion dollars, right? I mean, exactly, and and you know that's where you know when when I talk about the kind of panacea of this, you know, the, what what can be done with the world of services procurement, where organisations can really be looking at return investment and 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 focused on value and getting brilliant value and working with the best suppliers. Um, it comes down to very simply being able to capture what it is you want and what is it you got, which. You know, as we said at the beginning, is is fundamentally a simpler exercise within the area of goods, although there's clearly other complexities there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the point you made about innovation as well is a very, very good one. Uh, it's that classic thing of like, you know, the really harsh QBR with a supplier and then it's, you know, beat them up for for half an hour and then say right so what innovation have you got for us let's sit down and think of some innovation for me <laughs> so it's it's the, not the right context so i think this idea of procurement working in partnership with suppliers you know it, it's it's really important and it does work it, it made me think of a situation we're, we're in right now as an organization we're engaging with a large end client um and their procurement team are amazing they're absolutely brilliant they want to get the absolute best that they possibly can out of us. And that's really obvious in terms of the way that they're engaging in the process. It's not just a, we're going to beat you up and push your price down and then never speak to you again. It's they are actively engaging. Okay. Partly because we're a procurement relevant product. Um, but the, the way that they've engaged has been fantastic um, in the sense that they're, they're, they were encouraging us and working with us to get the best that they possibly can. And when, when organizations are working with specialist suppliers, you know, if they, they, they'll be wise to take that approach um, and where they do, it's gonna work well for them, particularly when it's in areas of real, you know, kind of rare subject matter expertise, et cetera, because they need to, they need to get the best out of that supplier and they need, to, they need to make sure they're doing the right things. Of course, they need to make sure the supplier's doing the right things, um, but, it, but it can work. And it's, um, as a supplier organization, it's a great feeling when that does happen. Um, it doesn't doesn't mean the supplier feels off the hook or that they're going to they don't really need to try very hard i'd say you're motivated to try even harder um but it's yeah it's and also when you look at things like um the alignment of of social values or esg type concerns between buyers and suppliers as well all of these things mean that there just needs to be a greater alignment 
Um, and also then it comes down to like your reliance on those suppliers and needing to have a resilient services supply chain of organizations that you can really work closely with um, and having a diversity within that. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go on to a completely new different tangent now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, going, going, going to what you said, like presumably that customer could be a fantastic case study. That could be a huge success story. You know, your incentives there are aligned, right? You want to, you both want to achieve uh, success. And again, you know, you said you're a specialist supplier. So clearly, you know, they have a vested interest in making sure this is successful. Your incentives are aligned. That is, that to me, that sounds like a dream client. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so really, really enjoyed that. Let's let's wrap things up for now. Um, in terms, I've got so many more questions for you, and there's so many more things that I would like to discuss. Um, I think we can we can build in some additional uh, conversations. I'd definitely like to do that if you're up for it. Um, so so in terms of uh, what you're doing around the book, you mentioned to me previously that you you might be kind of developing particular segments and kind of putting them out there to a certain extent. What What's your plan for that? Well, I mean, up until now, it's been kind of the mad workings of like Frankenstein here in, in my home office. <laughs> so I've, I've, I'm, you know, I'm cognizant that it's probably, um, you know, it's probably longer than it needs to be to do with tidying up. And so my plan is I'll kind of put a series of blog posts together, publish them on LinkedIn, try and try and get some feedback from kind of the, the wider procurement community and um, steer my, my thinking in, in the right direction, possibly, you know, get some, get some feedback from people who are in similar circumstances because, you know, service procurement is, as we, as we kind of mentioned, it's a big and very quickly growing world. And I think there's a lot of people with a lot of shared experiences that haven't quite had the opportunity to come together and share best practice yet. So that's what I'm kind of looking to do. I think that sounds fantastic. And, um, you know, maybe we can delve into some more specific topics as you, for example, if, you, if you're capturing a particular area in a blog post, I know there's so much detail we could, we could go into in some of these areas and you've got so much knowledge. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing the work on this and looking into it. I think it's really um, an important um, piece of work that you're doing. And it's certainly very, very interesting. So, so yeah, I think there's going to be lots of opportunity for us to um, kind of regroup on this as we move forward. Um, but I just really appreciate your time. And, and uh, you know, I found that conversation absolutely fascinating. And, uh, and hopefully, as you say, it opens up just, you know, it's not necessarily there's the answers. It's a discussion, isn't it? And hopefully that opens it up for other people who are interested in um, and have some of these questions and want to debate some of this sort of stuff. But um, I think you've put across some really interesting points. And uh, yeah, certainly feel like I've, uh, I've learned some good stuff from it as well. I'll be looking up I'll be looking at that book you mentioned. Um, so it was The World is flat. flat. Tom Friedman. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Good tip. Well, listen, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Tom. And um, yeah, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Yeah, I hope so. It's been, it's been fun. Brilliant. Best of luck with everything in the meantime. And uh, I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Johnny. Cheers.